It's the digital Psydog. I'm so excited. Uh, my name is David Rubio, and if you're a regular listen, listener to the Digital Psydog, then you you know you know that already. Maybe, although I realized the other day, and I'm speaking with my guest here, whom I will introduce in a moment, and I realized I, I'm not sure I've even said my name on the podcast in, that's, in that's, maybe seven podcasts. That's terrible. That's bad <laughs> business practice. Well, you got to work on marketing. But it could be a brilliant maneuver on my part, potentially, depending on how the, 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 the community out there that's listening to the Digital Side Hug feels about you know myself. Uh, David Rubio, I'm a youth minister, and I've got somebody with me today that is going to speak to our profession, is going to help us deal with some, some uh, really exciting, interesting, and sometimes very difficult aspects of youth ministry. I've got with me Michael Kimpan, or Kimpan, Kimpan, Kimpan. Kimpan, Kimpan, either way. My dad pronounces it both ways, so I've grown up very confused. <laughs> I don't even know how to say my own your, name. Your dad, honestly, he, you're not, he does both? He, he does. Well, usually it's Jeff Kimpan. Okay. And then every once in a while it's Kimpan. And so whenever I'm asked that question, and I get asked often. Yeah, oh how yeah. Do you, how do you pronounce your name? Yeah. And I just... I just go with the flow. K I M P A N. Yeah. It's not a weird name. No, it's not like you look at it and go, simple. yeah, it's should but, be easy. But I don't I've never heard it before. And yeah. so it it could be Kim Pan. It could be Kim Pan. You are the executive director of the Marin Foundation. I am. And I, I'm so thrilled that this has worked out. Um it, it sort of sprung up out of nowhere that we had an opportunity to sit down with you today. Uh, and I'm, I'm very excited because I know your heart and what you do at the Marin Foundation. I know some of that, and we're going to talk about it on this podcast. Um, but and, and I'll go ahead and just say this. Um, if some of you listening are youth ministers in the, in the Stone Campbell movement, or you're maybe with the Christian Church or the Disciples of Christ or Churches of Christ, which, which is where I minister at the Otter Creek Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a student of history, my historical Stone Campbell hero is T.B. Larimore. Hmm. He, he ministered in North Alabama around the turn of the century, um, late, late 19, I'm sorry, 1800s. And your foundation and you, Michael, and Andrew Marin, who founded the Marin Foundation, remind me of T.B. Larimore. Well, that's quite a compliment. And, and I'm going to throw that out right now. So yeah. in a sense, you're, you're sort of like the foundation, uh, you know, the T.B. Larimore of foundations for me. Wow. Wow. Check it out. <laughs> Those are big shoes to fill. Well, it, it, it is t- technically, but you know what? We'll say more about why in a few moments. Before we do anything else, can I hit the chain reaction music and begin a lightning round get to know me with you? This could be the thing I'm most excited about. Okay, it's going to be fun. And here we go with Michael Kempen. Now, Michael, tell me this. Uh, When you were 16 years old, if you can remember back, 16 years old, and how old are you now? I'm 35. So that was our first question, 35 years old. Okay. So 19 years ago, what was your favorite television program? None, because my mother threw out our TV saying it was the playground of the devil. Quote. Are you kidding? I'm dead serious. However, we did have a VHS. Hey, hey. Right, so you had thing. a video so, helix system. Yeah. we. <laughs> or is it vertical helix system? I have no idea. All I know <laughs> is that we were permitted to go to Blockbuster and rent two types of videos. This is not a joke. What this year, is by the way, serious. what year was this? What, what year were you 16? I was born in 78, so 16 would 16 have been would be 90, 94. 90. 
four. Right. And yeah. It's not long after I worked at Blockbuster. Okay. In 1990, 89.90. They don't exist anymore. Correct. They went out of business. <laughs> they did. So, but you got to go. I got and to what go. what was your favorite? And we could pick either Fat Albert, the cartoon, <laughs> or, or the original Star Trek. Captain Whoa. James Tiberius Kirk yeah. from the Starship Enterprise. But not the next never, generation? No, no. No, it was only those two. So I've seen every episode of the original series of Star Trek. And I don't want to be a Trekkie, but I have no choice. <laughs> because I've seen every single episode. We even purchased Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah, okay. So yeah. The, the, so tell me, in light of that, because I'm also a Trekkie, but I'm a Next Generation guy. Okay. I, I haven't seen every episode of the old one. I've seen every episode of the Next Generation. How did you feel about the new Star Trek movies? And by the way, for, this is a new question. This is a lightning round. Yeah, We're, yeah. We're just throwing them out there. How I, do you feel I about the new? I enjoyed them. You I did. enjoyed them. Yeah, I thought it was entertaining. I did too. I really did. I enjoyed it a lot. Okay, so um, tell us uh, where you live, what, what, what your title is at the Marin Foundation, and your favorite place to go on vacation. That was three questions at once. Boom. Okay, so I am the executive director at the Marin Foundation. I live in Chicago in the neighborhood of Boys Town. That's the primarily gay neighborhood in Chicago. That's right. I live at the corner of Belmont and Halsted, which is the heart of Boys Town. I'm right in the thick of it. And then my favorite place to go for vacation is my dad once took me to St. John's in, nope, Yep, it Saint was John's. Saint Thomas. Sorry, I'm getting my saints mixed up. Saint Thomas, the Virgin in, Islands. In the yeah, in the Caribbean, oh. and it was incredibly beautiful. And all I did was sit on the beach and, and watch Fat Albert videos. <laughs> no, no, I read. I was educating myself. It was okay. gorgeous. I love it. That's great. Uh, I had a question, and then my attempt to be hilarious, I lost it. Uh, okay, give on the scale. We're still in the lightning round of get to know me. Scale of one to ten. Rate your lunch today. Oh, that's so good because I went to Joey's Pizza, which is incredible. Greasy yes. and fulfilling <laughs> and delicious. I'd have to give it at least an eight because right now I feel like there's some kind of stone in my belly. Yeah. I've got two more questions for you, and then we're going to get to it. So mm. uh, the first one is a question by Morris Gregoire. Uh, he has written a book called Asking Can Be Fun. Uh, DSH listeners will, will know uh, Morris. I'm going to start the music back over again. Um, and he's written a book called Asking Can Be Fun. He, he is actually looking to get the book published. So I should say, if anyone out there in podcast land uh, likes what you hear when you hear questions from Morris Gregoire, contact me. Uh, you, can, you can email me at uh, thedigitalsidehug, no spaces, at gmail.com. Let me know. I'd, I'd love to find out. Um, and here's the question that Morris Gregoire gives us today for you, Michael Kipman, uh, or Kipman. Kimpen. Kimpen. See, it, it is, is tricky. It, it is. What is the origin of the comfy pants you wear within the privacy of your own home? Oh, wow. The origin of the comfy pants you, you wear in your own home. All right, I'm going to go with heaven, and that requires an explanation. Okay, I, I'm not sure I like where this is going. Well, I'm just saying, in the privacy of my own home, oh, no. my comfy pants is my birthday suit. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. And Psalm, okay. one, what Psalm 139 tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Handcrafted, right. handcrafted by the divine. And that, so that is the origin of my comfy my pants. My youth group literally <laughs> spent our time Sunday morning reading together in book club this idea nice. of, of Psalm of comfy 139. Pants. Well, no, not the comfy oh, pants I idea. See. 
I misunderstood. I misunderstood. I love. Thank you so much for that. All right. Final question. I always ask my guests um, uh, a button question. So there is a button in front of you. If you press the button, you lose the ability to walk. Okay. You. Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. So this question might not work for everyone because some people have already lost the ability to walk. Right, right. Um, so this, but for you, you're able to walk now, but if you press the button, you no longer can walk. Right. You, you can stand, you can run, hmm. you know, you can sprint, you can jog, you can run, but you cannot walk for the rest of your life. If you do not press the button, you become inadvertently unconscious anytime the sun is below the horizon. Oh. So from this point forward, you may only operate in consciousness when the sun is above the horizon. Yes. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and say you must be conscious. Like you physically can't sleep when the sun is up and you go to sleep immediately when the sun dips below the horizon. So mm. that's it. And you got, you know, 30 seconds to to press the button. Do you press it and lose the ability to walk or do you not press it and become unconscious with the sun? I get up and walk away from the button. Okay. I mean, this we're talking at least eight hours of sleep. Nice. Every single. Yeah. Uh, this is brilliant. You're gonna. You're going to enjoy the extra Z's. That's right. <laughs> I mean, this, right. this is more than doubling my regular time. Yes. And the Marin <laughs> Foundation, they've got all the sunlight in the world to do right. their and work. And then I, I can even say, I'm sorry, I can't answer the email, phone call, or text. <laughs> yes. I'm physically incapable. Yeah. Would you like to meet tonight at nine o'clock? The answer is, I'd like to, but I can't. Exactly. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for letting us get to know you, Michael. Um, let's start with this. What's the Marin Foundation? I've told listeners that you, you're the executive director for the Marin Foundation. By the way, I've also mentioned there's a guy named Andrew Marin out right, there, so it right. might be worth saying why he's not the executive director of the Marin Foundation. But let's begin with what, what is the Marin Foundation and, and what do you hope to do through it? Excellent. So the Marin Foundation is a nonprofit organization based in the city of Chicago, and we work to build bridges between opposing worldviews, primarily between the broader LGBTQ community and the church. So what I mean by that is the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer community uh, and the church. And so often we see this disconnect, this almost back and forth split screen dynamic uh, where if you turn on CNN or MSNBC or whatever news program, Fox News, etc., you've got these two sides speaking at and past yeah. one another, not really engaging in peaceful and productive dialogue in any way, uh, but but almost really adopting the idea that there's this culture war. And the Marin Foundation exists to create safe and sacred spaces to engage in conversation with folks who don't agree and say, let's treat one another with the inherent respect and dignity we believe is present in every single human being, regardless of their philosophical, theological, uh, sociological perspectives. And so that's really what we do in the work that we do. We work with uh, churches and higher education institutions, government agencies, uh, other non- non-government organizations. Uh, and Andrew Marin, who you mentioned, founded the organization about 12 years ago. Uh, and he did the work and essentially just moved into Boys Town, the neighborhood that I live in now, uh, because three of his best friends came out to him. And he didn't know with his kind of upbringing within a conservative evangelical church, how to love them well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what he had been taught to do and what he had been taught to believe, how he executed those beliefs really uh, broke the friendship that he had with these three individuals. Mm-hmm. And later he came, came to his senses and he was like, I, I didn't do that well. 
uh, and he had the maturity to acknowledge, I don't know how to do this well. And to be clear, and I, I got a chance to, to begin listening to some some of Andrew's podcasts and, and presentations, at, uh, specifically at, you know, at youth worker conventions a few years ago. And if I recall correctly, this was this was three friends at different times. It wasn't like that's, a coalition right. of, of and, it, and it wasn't just at different times, but it was three successive months. One friend after another came yeah. out to him, and he he records uh, this story and some others about our work in his uh, award-winning book "Love Is an Orientation" uh, through IVP InterVarsity Press. Uh, you can get it pretty much any any bookstore, uh, Christian bookstore, Barnes and Noble. Amazon. Yeah, this is a this is a shameless self promotion. Oh yeah, yeah. Sell the books, baby. The bus. Sell the uh, books. But so what? What he did is he he ran the organization. He wrote this book, and uh, we began to expand in our influence uh, and our and our opportunity. Yeah. And uh, far beyond anything that he had anticipated or imagined. Uh, we're really a small organization. We all raise our own salary. Uh, we work out of the basement of a church that's determined they, they want to partner with us and, and, and kind of walk with us as they right. journey in this conversation. Uh, so we're really small. And yet, Andrew's done advisory for the United Nations yeah. across the world. He uh, traveled to Australia and was there for a month in over 65 speaking engagements. Uh, we get calls from the White House. Uh, I had a, a U.S. senator who I can't name because it's all confidential, but he literally, <laughs> I was in D.C. and he came came up to me and said, uh, we need we need to have you on our advisory team as yeah. we begin to navigate these uh, politically uh, charged waters. And so we've got this tremendous amount of influence no money, yeah. and we don't we don't really know what we're doing. We're literally learning every yeah. single day, and yet we've been put in this position as the experts because we're we're literally the only folks who are actively engaging in this conversation without choosing a side. Yeah, and that, right. That and I was going to say there there are a lot of things I love about the Marion Foundation. I love that you that you're not exploiting this for monetary gain. It's it's obvious listening to you that the influence you have would seem to coincide with with some monetary rake mm. in the money in but that's not happening. I mean you, you you guys that's not where your heart is and but I I love that you're that you're uh, you call it a you're fiercely neutral, right? Yeah. I mean it, it's a it's yeah. a you're you're dedicated to neutrality here and tell us what that means and tell us why? Sure. Well, this is this is, in my opinion, our greatest strength and also our biggest critique from outsiders. Uh, many folks who aren't in, intensely familiar with the work that we do kind of pick up on this and say, "See, I I can't trust you." Right. So the way that we operate, as I mentioned earlier, is the split screen mentality, where people are asked simple yes or no questions that dictate who you are and how I should treat you. Are you one of us or are you one of them? And, and an example would be... Uh, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? Give me a yes or a no. Uh, do you believe... Simple yes yeah, or no. Right, right. So, and Andrew outlined some of these in his book that really shaped the philosophy of the Marin Foundation. So what we've said is, look, there are people that we know across a broad spectrum of faith and gender and sexuality. And many of these individuals who we consider our friends uh, and they consider us their friends mm -hmm. don't agree, right? And so when we say, well, here's my yes or no response, we're, we're choosing a side and therefore alienating folks who don't align with that preferred perspective. You've got friends on both, both sides, sides. Oh, and, yeah. and choosing a side means making an enemy. It means choosing a, 
a, a battle, and a battle's not what you want to rage. It's not what you're interested in. Well, right. What, what we could say within the context of the church specifically is that the way that the broader church, I mean, Big C Church, has engaged in conversations with the LGBTQ community has not worked. It hasn't gone well. Right, and we're, so we're, in our attempts to love, it, we haven't loved. It hasn't felt right. like love. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. And, and in many cases, it's it's been a a non-attempt. Even this is we're not yeah. going to talk about this. We're not going to engage this from a Christ-centered perspective. And so our organization has said, well, let's let's have a strategic and intentional neutrality when we're working with folks, whether it's a church or a higher education institution. We'll come in and we'll say, we're not here to promote a particular agenda. We're not here to convert or persuade you to a specific theological or philosophical worldview. Instead, we're going to adopt your theological and philosophical framework and work within that framework to help you do better. Right. So you've got churches who some churches are what folks would call gay affirming churches. So they bless, endorse and consecrate same sex relationships uh, between two people of the same gender. And then you've got other churches that folks would say are non affirming churches. The way that they interpret scripture would be the traditional conservative interpretation Mm -hmm. regarding faith and sexuality, marriage, things like that. And those churches who put, you know, signs on their front lawn that says marriage equals man plus woman. uh, That's not loving well. Right? right, and so we we are able to get into those churches because we haven't said this is what we believe. We're able to go to both spaces and say, "Hey, maybe we can engage better." So I work with not just churches and religious institutions, but also with uh, organizations that are are specific to uh, LGBTQ equality movements. So groups like the Human Resources Center, uh, HRC, uh, GLAD, which is a group that works to against uh, defamation. Uh-huh. Uh, of, of any group. And so we work with them as well as with churches. And we're able to work with both because we don't have a particular agenda other than saying, how can we love and how can we elevate this conversation beyond just the yes or no? Are you one of us or yeah. one of them? Are you going to change your worldview, drop your worldview and convert to my perspective? Well, the reality is not everybody's going to do that. Right. We disagree about a vast number of things. And some of the things that we disagree on, and you can see this in the news, right, in, in Ferguson. You can uh, see this in the news in Gaza. You can see this in the news with ISIS. Sometimes disagreement blows up into violence, right? And other times our disagreement is done peacefully and productively. And in the midst of the culture wars and the history that is, exists specifically in our country, but really across the world, uh, regarding this disconnect between the LGBT community and the church, we want to make sure that we're able to avoid further violence against people, whether that's mind, body, or spirit. But to say, in the midst of our disagreement, how do we treat people the way that we believe Jesus wants all people to be treated? And that's really the passion that, that drives our work. I, being a product of, of you know a church system, I grew up in a church, I can imagine that your neutrality that you guys hold to, I can imagine how that might be, you know, how a a church group might respond to that. So they might say, you're being soft on Scripture. Mm -hmm. I I would love, A, to hear, how do you respond to church people that would love, you know, a church that wants to love and would love to have your help, you know, figuring out how to communicate in ways that, that say to every person, we love you, which is so obviously gospel, you mm-hmm. know, that, that God is love. I mean, it's obvious we should be loving people. That's that's our, you know, the greatest command is love God and love others as you love right, yourself. Right. Hopefully all churches want to do that. But if they say, you look soft on scripture to us. What is your response to that, if that's okay if I ask? Yeah. And, and number two would be, 
what would be the response to neutrality from the LGBTQ community? Mm-hmm. What would their response, like you haven't gone far enough, what, they wouldn't say soft on scripture, they might say soft on you don't love or I don't know. Sure. And then what would your response be there? Well, I'll start with your second question and work my way back. Okay, Okay. Great. So. Um, as I mentioned, I've got friends on both sides and a lot of folks within the broader gay community, just like you can't say, for for instance, you can't go, well, the straight community feels this way. Because within the straight community, you've There's got a Republicans vast array. and Democrats yes. and Christians and non-Christians and Jews and Muslims and all these different atheists even. And you get you know, all of these people right. in, in, in different geographies and different perspectives. And the same is true within the gay community, right? It's not just, well, all, all gay people feel this way. Right, uh, right. And so... Uh, there's a there's a spectrum, and then there's the proximity and relationship that I have with people who know me, know my heart, know our work. Uh, but for for a lot of the folks who maybe only read about us in the media or only hear about Andrew Marin through uh, you know his book or work, um, they develop opinions about the reason behind our strategic neutrality, right? And so they're like, well, the reason that you're strategically neutral is because you don't have the cojones uh-huh. to, to say that you're gay affirming or that you're not gay affirming. And, and you're therefore unsafe yeah. because I don't know who you are, right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because an organization actually can't have a perspective, right? The people within the organization can have a perspective and opinion. And our staff does. We have a, a broad uh, spectrum in our staff, even though we're small, we don't all agree on everything, right. even on issues of faith, gender, and sexuality. How many but on your staff? Did you just say five? five. Mm-hmm. Uh, but within that, if we can't operate in these spaces, having peaceful, productive dialogue and creating heaven on earth and, and doing kingdom of God work, if we can't do that together in the midst of our disagreement, then why in the world am I traveling around the country telling people how to do it, right? So we need to be able to do this in our office space. Right. We need to be That's... able to do this in our biweekly gatherings, which are diverse communities gatherings called Living in the Tension, uh-huh. where we actively live in the tension of disagreement with one another. Right. And we say, what does it look like for us to engage in these hot topic issues in ways that respect one another and say that everyone's life experience is valid and legitimate to them? So that would be my response That's to, to really, the broader gay community. Okay. okay. All right. So, now, so and, just to, I, what I heard in there that I loved so much is that you're trying to do something so difficult, which is remain neutral on something everyone wants you to choose a side on. And especially because you've got influence. Hmm. I mean, you, you guys are kind of a big deal when it comes to this conversation. And you're, you're, you're trying to do something very difficult, which is rooted in the humility to say, it's okay if I'm misunderstood. It's okay if you're all angry hmm. at us. We're going to be who we are, and we're going to let God lead us. And and now to play that out and to live that intentionally on your staff, mm. as you say, we're not going to make everybody agree. You know, we're going to live this. I just think that is a real cool way to put your money where your mouth is. Right. Well, thank you. I Yeah, I think so, too. Um, and, you know, within our, our living in the tension gatherings, we've got a group of about 30 people that show up regularly. That's just our regular attendance. And we've had groups of 200. We've had groups of less. Yeah. Uh, but um, 30 people get together. We eat dinner together. We develop friendships. We hang out outside of that group. And we've developed real friendships with people who have vast disagreements, yeah. theologically, philosophically. And and it's it's a neat thing because you're, you're not – forcing yourself to be surrounded by people who think like, act like, and look like you, but instead are saying, what does it look like for me to live out these principles that I keep jabbing about? What does it look like to actually live those out? Have you seen any 
sort of Westboro Baptist-ish people join one of these? Or, or, or is it among, among fundamentalists or among evangelicals or conservatives or whoever you would say, hmm. does there have to be, you know, is, is there a baseline that you just don't see anybody show up beyond that point? Well, I'll tell you. And, and, and is that even okay yeah. to ask? And yeah, by the no, way, every, everything, every question's on the table. That's fine. Um, I, I always say you can't reason with crazy. Uh-huh. Right. And so we've had some folks that come in and are crazy. And if you look at the comments on our website and our blog or if you go to our Facebook page, there's some crazy there. And sometimes we have to block people just because they're uh, not because of their disagreement, but because of their insistence on being disrespectful yeah. to humans. Right. right? Um, and Brian McLaren, who's uh, not just a, an author and a, a, a mentor, uh, but also a friend, um, has had some very helpful things regarding the ways in which faith communities look at this conversation. It was on a blog post. Uh, He was invited to a White House gathering, and he said there are essentially four zones. Um, One is uh, celebrating, endorsing violence of LGBT people in the name of God and religion. That's zone one. That's your Westboro Baptist type. Zone two would be uh, disagreeing with violence, right? But, But maybe appreciating some stigmatization and marginalization of gay people in the name of God and religion. Uh, Zone three would be working to reduce harm uh, and opposing violence in the name of God and religion. And then, of course, zone four would be your affirming churches that say not only do we oppose violence and stigmatization, but we're working toward equality. Um, So we usually get zones two, three, and four. Zone one folks aren't really interested in They're not in interested us. in this yeah. conversation. Yeah. Okay. I was just making sure. Yeah. It, it sounded like you were about to head over and answer the, fir- the first of those questions. Absolutely. So so you're soft on Scripture. What, what, what's your – how do you respond to that? And I'm sure you have to pretty often. I do. I, well, and especially from folks like Zone 1 people, right, right who say you're not even a believer. You're not a follower yeah. of Jesus. And there's a, there's a piece of me that struggles because I almost get arrogant when I get ready to answer this question. I went to Moody Bible Institute for my undergrad. I did seminary work at Trinity. Right. I'm taking extra classes. I can read Greek, right? I know yeah. the Bible. Uh, so – there's there's this thing that like wells up in me. I'm like, you don't even know who you're talking to, right. which is just ridiculous um, because, you know, we're all learning. But, yes, I but, love that. But the way that I do respond is I say, man, when, when I went through a hard period in my own life, which kind of gets to the question of how did I get to the Marin mm-hmm. Foundation, um, I had a marriage. Uh, it ended in divorce. Uh, a lot of the folks who were in my church community, in my faith community, even friends from Bible college, really marginalized me in a way that I'd never experienced mm-hmm. before. Um, and I walked away from the faith for years. Uh, and when I came back to my senses like the prodigal son in Luke 15, right, when I, when I realized this isn't how I want to live, mm-hmm. um, I belong to my father's house and I, I want to I find my way back. Yeah. Maybe I'm not as worthy as I once thought I was, which is where humility stems from, right? And yet there's the understanding of my own identity. This is my family. Uh, so when I came back, my, my friend and mentor uh, told me, why don't you just read the Gospels? over and over. Uh, You know what Paul says. You know what the Mm -hmm. Old Testament says. Uh, Just read the story of Jesus and fall in love with Jesus again. Uh, And I did that for three years. I just read the Gospels. And as I'm reading the Gospels, I realized that that Jesus Christ himself stands up for and stands with the marginalized and the ostracized and the oppressed. And that deeply resonated with me as someone who had, had 
undergone a little bit of marginalization, very small amount, really, when you compare it to other folks. But that was one of the things that I brought into the conversation was in those years where I wasn't in church circles, I was working in a coffee shop. Hmm. And in a coffee shop, my boss was gay and he and I became really good friends. And so I met his gay friends and his lesbian friends and his bisexual friends and his trans friends. And I'm like surrounded with people who've been marginalized by pastors like I used to be. Hmm. And so when I came back into this understanding of, hey, at the heart of the gospel is an unconditional love for all people, regardless of who they are or where they're coming from. And I was able to receive that as a healing and restorative thing in my own life. My next question was, okay, great. I'm glad you were able to not marginalize me as a divorced man. How can we not marginalize my gay friends? Yeah. And uh, I see that you're telling me there's space for me in this church. Is there space for my gay friends? And uh, that really has driven me to a place of um, wanting to follow Christ the way that the Christ left an example for us. I'm, I'm compelled by the life teachings and example of yeah. Jesus. And he continually oversteps bounds of the Torah, of the law of his right. day, uh, standing up for people who've broken the law, standing up for people who were seen as unworthy, even through no fault of their own. And there are some amazing parallels in these conversations. And so when people tell me I'm soft on scripture, I say, no, I just take the red letters really seriously. Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you are the, the, the T.B. Larimore of foundations for me, and it's because of this. T.B. Larimore was a preacher who refused to take sides in the issue at the time for Stone Campbell was the piano, the, the mm, musical right, instruments right, right, in right, the yeah. church. And we had, after the, in the wake of the Civil War, you know, the, the churches in the South couldn't afford pianos. Churches in the North could. It became a real issue. And churches on both sides were, you had to pick. And T.B. Larimore said, I'm not picking and I'm not choosing a side. I mean, and he got he he was attacked by both. But in the end, at his at his death, he was he was celebrated by both sides in their papers. You know, mm-hmm. at his funeral, um, be, because he was the picture of I love you. You know, he was the picture of you're my brother too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to to send one group to the side or the other. Uh, I'm not going to line up. You know. And and I re- that is that's got to be hard. You know, you said you're the only ones doing it. I, I feel like you probably you have to know that. I mean, that can't just be a, br- a brag sure. that you throw out. I mean, a lot of people are talking about mm-hmm. how churches can you know try to love the LGBTQ community better. Um, but but it it you know it's got to be tempting at times. You know, or maybe if not tempting, at least difficult to continue maintaining that neutrality. Yeah, well, and what's really interesting, so you had asked why Andrew's not sitting here yeah. uh, and, and running the day-to-day well, I, operations well, yeah. of the organization, right? So he's doing his PhD. And that's not to say I'd rather no, be no, sitting no. beside Andrew. You, I've, <laughs> I've actually had the time of my life with this guy today. It's been really, We really were fun. at Joey's. What we, more could you ask for? We went flying past a funeral procession. Oh, we did. On the interstate without even knowing. I promise you people, I did not know that I was passing a funeral It's illegal. Procession. It's I, illegal, I, and we did it. Well, and the funny thing is we were talking about, you know, how to not offend people. Yeah. You know, that's the language we were, we were, we were talking so about. We were so actively engaged in discussion that we passed the funeral procession on the left and didn't realize it until we heard the siren on the lead car, and yes. we were like, what is going on? That's not a cop. I, it was a minivan. It was, it was a white a one. With a siren, and I thought, what have I done? And I realized... I have been so engrossed in this conversation about how not to offend people. Now I'm, I've just offended an entire funeral procession. Right, which is, that's a great parallel 
for <laughs> for these conversations. So An- Andrew is in St. Andrews, Scotland, doing his PhD at the university there in theology. Uh, and he had been engaged in this conversation and really spearheaded a new cultural category, right? And so now there there are some conversations that are coming up from different groups about third-way churches and how do churches navigate this without offending folks. And this is a real conversation from, from good-hearted people of we have a theologically conservative position. What does it look like for us to practice this in a way that doesn't alienate folks who don't agree with us, yeah. folks with more of a progressive uh, uh, perspective? And so people are beginning to navigate that, and that really came from Andrew 12 years ago before this conversation was uh, a hot topic in churches, um, wanting to love his friends, just his three friends, right? And uh, the things that he learned and the conversations that he had as he moved into this gay neighborhood in Chicago, which is a one square mile radius where 85% of the population, according to the last census, identifies as LGBT. And so uh, him living there threw off the, sp- the statistics and me living there, I'm straight, throw off the statistics. Um, but most of our neighbors are gay. A- and so we asked ourselves the question, when, when we hear the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor, how do I literally love my literal neighbors? What does it look like yeah. for me to do that? Uh, and so those were the beginnings of those conversations. And uh, he's taking a bit of a sabbatical, although he still is actively going to Oxford and Cambridge and presenting uh, his research and papers and things like that. So obviously he's still representing the Marin Foundation. It's named after him. Uh, And he's in the midst of writing his second book, which will come out in June or July Mm -hmm. through IVP, which goes through some of the research that we did talking about how the gay community really has their roots in uh, conservative faith communities. Over 86% of folks who identify as LGBT grew up in some kind of church or synagogue or religious service. Say that stat again. 86% of the LGBTQ community grew up in an an active religious faith community. And so when we try to pose this conversation as us versus them and the church versus, it's not even the real conversation, right? right? Uh, These are folks who came out of our churches. These are folks who are in our churches now. Uh, And I think that gets to some of the questions that you wanted to ask me about uh, youth ministers that uh, many of whom listen to your your podcast. And what does it look like for us to engage in this conversation better? Right, that's right, yeah. um, and and we, I, I want to get to that. Let's quickly talk about this book because you have talked about getting into the Gospels, and mm. which speaks to the book that you've written. And then I want to get into some practical youth ministry stuff. Tell us what the book is called. Tell us why you wrote it. In fact, they, I, the story's cool because they came to you and said, "Please write this." Um, and and give us give us a you know like sure. a soundbite or, or a, tell us what we're going to learn in it. Yeah, well, I'm really excited about it. I've never written a book before, so this is uh, new territory for me, and I'm I'm genuinely uh, thrilled about what I've what I've been able to to learn and put down on paper. The book is called Love Never Fails. Uh, and it's through InterVarsity Press, which is the same publisher that did Andrew's book, Love is an Orientation. So Love is an Orientation is his, and then Love Never Fails is mine. And essentially, in Love is an Orientation, which Andrew wrote, there was advice for your regular church person, right? Yeah. Uh, People who sit in the pews uh, week in and week out, this is how you can better love the gay community. These are some of the negative stereotypes that you bring into the conversation. It was actually published in 2009, so the awareness level has increased over the last several years in this conversation and dialogue. So his book was really groundbreaking in many ways and still continues to be helpful for a lot of people and families uh, when their sons or daughters come out to them. Um, 
So one of the critiques of Andrew's book was, hey, this is great for people in the pews, but pastors specifically, uh, this isn't very helpful for people in the pulpit. We kind of have an obligation as pastors to Mm -hmm. tell people this is what the Bible says and this is what this church believes. And we've got to craft policies with our elders and our deacons um, and, and create structure and membership and things like that. And so Andrew wasn't really able to speak to that Uh, because he had never worked in a church and had never been a pastor. And so one of the reasons that he asked me to run the organization while he's over in Scotland is because I have been a pastor and I have been engaged in those discussions within local church communities. And so when IVP found that out, they said, we'd really love for you to write a book uh, geared toward church leaders and pastors. Uh, And so essentially the elevator speech that I give about the book is that it's, um, my premise is that the disconnect between the church and the LGBT community is problematic, but it's symptomatic of a much deeper problem, right? That's not the issue itself. The deeper problem is that we have this groupishness that drives a lot of what we say and a lot of what we do within religiosity. We versus them, is that what you mean by groupishness? Yeah, us versus them, in versus out, right versus wrong, all of these black and white dichotomies that we falsely put up really to make ourselves feel feel better about our own junk, mm-hmm. right? And so as I was tremendously influenced by the Gospels, and I, I literally counted how many times in the four Gospels Jesus stands in solidarity with the marginalized, crossing a cultural or a religious boundary. It's got to be three, uh, three or four or six. It's 45, <laughs> 45 different times, literally 45. 45 so we're talking- times in the Gospels he stands with the marginalized, in, in, in contradiction to the religious leaders, in contradiction to culture itself. So a cultural example and religious example, because sometimes it's both, yeah. would be John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, right? So she's a Samaritan woman and she worships Yahweh God, the right God, but she's on the wrong mountain. She's on Mount Gerizim, not Mount Zion. And that's because she's not allowed. She's marginalized right. because she's a half-breed, yeah. right? She's not a full-blooded Jew. And so Jesus, who's a Jewish rabbi and shouldn't be in Samaria at all, according to culture, and then according to religion, shouldn't be sitting there talking with a woman and, and a shouldn't, be, woman. Yeah. shouldn't be giving her permission to worship on Mount Gerizim, which right. is in contradiction to what the Torah says, right? And it's fascinating because as you read this dialogue that Jesus has with this woman over a cup of water, he says a day is coming and has now come where it doesn't matter what mountain you worship on. And the implications of that are huge, right? So that's yeah. one example. And there are of 45. (laughs) And so uh, I kind of, I I make a huge chart where we go through that. It's going to be an appendix in the book. And then I also, in between chapters, kind of retell some of those stories to kind of paint it in a different light for us uh, today. So like modern day stories, you retell those stories from your own No, I I, I literally go into the gospel story and, for example, John 8. I say, okay, here's what's going on with this woman. Uh, And and, and she's the woman caught in the act of adultery. And this is what was at stake for her. Mm -hmm. And this is what it means when Jesus asks everybody, hey, if you don't have sin and you want to throw a rock, go ahead. And then he kneels down next to her, which Mm -hmm. means that if somebody threw a rock, it wouldn't just hit her, Mm -hmm. it hit him. So kind of pulling out some of those things that we so easily miss when we're reading through scripture or when we're pulling a passage to proof text our theological perspective. So the groupishness thing, right, is the premise. And then underneath that, there are two things that I think hinder most churches from engaging well. The first is an addiction to answers. 
in that when we're in the pulpit as pastors, as preachers, we have a tendency to tell people this is what is right, this is what is wrong, this is what you're supposed to believe. And that's part of preaching history. That's part of what we're taught when we Mm -hmm. go to Bible college. And yet as you look at Jesus, he didn't teach that way. He didn't teach that way at all. And so I'm really challenged and compelled by the way in which Jesus teaches because I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who works in the church and says they're a better preacher than Jesus, right? So maybe, maybe we should take our cues from Christ if we actually claim to follow the guy and preach differently, particularly on issues that are culturally, socially, religiously divisive. So that's one suggestion. And then the second one is the inherent exclusivity of church membership. So even if your church is uh, conservative in their theology of sexual ethics, meaning that they say gay sex is a sin, right? Even if that's your starting point, and and as someone who works with the Marin Foundation, I'll adopt that theological perspective. I'll work with you. When when you come in, yeah, you work with churches all the time that take that stance and would say, help us be more loving. Absolutely. And my goal isn't to convert them to a more progressive perspective. But within that perspective, I'd say there are a lot of other things that you call sin, too. Mm -hmm. What about gluttony? What about gossip? What about you know, remarriage, what about all of these different things that you would say are less than God's best, which is the definition of sin, missing the mark of perfection, Mm -hmm. right? We all do. Today, I had too much pizza. (laughs) (laughs) I'm paying the price. we put some of it in a a to-go box. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we didn't throw it out. So we weren't wasteful. But I mean, we we can nitpick different sins all day, but there are only a few that we actually write into policy and say, you can't belong yeah. as a member of this faith community because you're sinful in this way. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be a high-handed hypocrisy. And when you look at the way that Jesus engaged those who were caught in sin or who were living in sin, even within the context of the 12 that he chose to be his disciples, you've got 12 curiously single Jewish men, right, who lost their jobs. One of them is a zealot, which in our modern day would be a terrorist, mm-hmm. right? He's, yeah. he's actively trying to overthrow the the government. Um, And then you've got Judas, who is his betrayer. And even though he knows in John 13 at the Last Supper that Judas had given his soul over to the devil, this is what John says, right? He had, the devil had come into Judas and Jesus invites him into the Eucharist and washes his feet. And so when we have all these dialogues that you see in the newspaper about refusing to bake a cake for a gay couple and all this stuff, I'm like, well, that isn't what Jesus would do, Right. right? Jesus doesn't refuse to serve anybody. Wow. It's incredible how in the context of this conversation, what you're saying, it's like at the same time, it seems like the most obvious thing ever that no one could argue with, but it also it also is obviously going to ruffle so many feathers and create so many problems. And I want to transition because now we're talking about youth ministers and a lot of people listen to this podcast work in youth groups. You know, Every youth pastor I know just love students. They love students. Not these students or those students. Hmm. It's students. We just want what God wants for them. We, we, we want them to know him and to receive full life and to live into that, their calling, you know, all these things. And, and yet, so we find ourselves working in church contexts where, you know, we, we know our students go to school with LGBTQ people. You know, we, we mm-hmm. know that there are gay students in the schools. And we're increasingly aware of this mm-hmm. in our culture. And and we're starting to suspect that this is in our churches mm-hmm. or will be coming in soon. And, and, and probably we're fooling ourselves if we think it's not Absolutely. already here. Yep. Help us with some practical thoughts on how can we be youth groups? How can we lead youth groups that will be 
the picture of love for for the students in our communities now, the, the sons and daughters of our family, uh, church family, for their friends that may want to come find a loving community and who may be wondering, will this church love me just like I am? Such a good question. Yeah, I, I think there are a number of things that, that we can do as leaders. So I used to be a youth, youth pastor, right? right? That's right. I loved um, reading that in your bio. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was a junior high youth pastor. I'm not good at that. <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad at junior high. That takes a special gifting, and I don't have that. So they moved me into high school, and we, we quickly realized that he doesn't really do that very well either. <laughs> <laughs> so they put me in college, and I seem to thrive with young adults, right. uh, college-age kids. That's but, uh, yeah, I, I just I would get I would get so frustrated too easily with high school drama and then junior high kids I just I didn't connect with them it was really it was bad I, I I'm not a father but if I ever have children I fear for how I'm going to engage with <laughs> ages 12 to 14 because I just I got more awkward than the students did That's I mean funny. yeah so yeah. but but as as I led these groups I I wrestled with some of these same questions how can I how can I make this place safe for everybody how can I make this space loving for all students. Right. And some of it is as simple as modeling behavior and modeling language in the leadership, right? So not just the youth pastor, but the volunteer base, the, the adult leaders that are engaged, the, maybe the small group leaders, even a student leadership team. Um, the simple, and this, this one's kind of a no-brainer, but the idea that, that there is no bullying allowed uh, in our groups, that uh, we don't make fun of people because they're different, and we don't tolerate uh, you know, not just physical For any violence, reason, right? right? But not not just physical, but even even emotional or verbal yeah. abuse of people, right? Uh, so it, it's kind of like that blanket. This is part of our DNA, part of our culture that we love everybody, and that's kind of an expectation that you set regularly. And 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 most youth pastors do this. That's kind of you know right. youth ministry one hundred and one. Yeah, yeah. We're but, allergic to anything that looks like that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So so then then there's the the language that is used, and it's so subtle and it's constantly changing, right? So we, we've talked about uh, how in Andrew's book in 2009, the predominant language for the broader gay community was GLBT, gay, lesbian, mm-hmm. bisexual, transgender. Well, it shifted to LGBT. Which and, can, and why? How, how do you know it shifted? Well, it, because, but how we know is because we're actively engaged in the community. We live in Boys Town, and we take our cues from the community, okay. right? We're doing a lot of listening, a lot of learning, and we're saying, how do you want me to identify you? How, so it doesn't even want... matter why. The fact is it did sure. change, right. and you're going you're gonna to refer to them in that way. But I do know the reason why, sociologically, is because in the 80s and uh, 90s, when the AIDS scare came to the U.S., and a lot of gay men, predominantly gay men, were suffering from this new disease, HIV/AIDS. Uh, the mo- majority of the individuals who acted as nurses in the communities in large cities like New York and San Francisco, where there was a particularly high rate of folks that were infected, were lesbian women. And uh, you know, a lot of folks in the lesbian female community were feminists, particularly in that era of saying we deserve equal rights. Yeah. And uh, so as as there was an acknowledgement and a respect from the male gay community to the active love that they experienced mm-hmm. from the lesbian community saying, when everybody else turned their backs on us, you stepped up for us, you fought for us, you marched in the streets for us mm-hmm. to get medication and to get 
education surrounding this disease. They were like, well, let's respect you and we'll put you first. Wow. LGBT, which is really I, cool. I, I, had no, yeah. I, didn't, I hadn't heard that story. Yeah, and it's now changing to LGBTQ. So right. Q can stand for queer or questioning. And queer used to be a word that you avoided because it was kind of a slur yeah. uh, toward the gay community. But this younger generation of millennials are kind of repurposing that word, much like some words have been used in hip-hop culture, right, that we're going to reclaim this word and use it as, as ours, and yeah. it's not going to be a word that's hurtful. Um, so that's happening. And the center on Halsted, which is the largest gay community center in the nation, which is literally right by my house, was called the LGBT Center, and it's now shifting to be called the LGBTQ Center. So you'll see that reflected in a lot of our language. But even beyond that kind of obvious example where we're talking about right. homosexuality um, are some subtle things. Like when you're, when you're talking to your youth group about dating or about sex, uh, we often will just kind of adopt a heteronormative identity and we'll say, so guys, when you feel this way about a girl, and that assumes, well, normal yeah. is straight and therefore abnormal is gay. So if you're a gay student, even if you're not openly gay, maybe you haven't told your youth pastor, maybe you're even sitting there thinking like, I don't know what to do about this. I need to talk to somebody about yeah. this. I wonder if I can go talk to David. Well, yeah. if David gets up and says, hey, guys, I assume you like girls, yeah. that, that 14, 15, 16-year-old student is not going to talk to you, right? Yeah, cause th th that's right. I mean, in our, what, the way it's going to play out in our context will be someone that we don't know having a feeling that they're scared to death of and, and they're afraid makes them, you know, it, it is going to pile on some kind of shame that they may not know what to deal with. They're looking for some hope and they, and they hear from the establishment, there's one way to be and it's not you. And, right. and there's, and I'm talking to one normal person and you're not him. Uh, again, we're trying to show love. So, so we would say, when you get those tingly feelings about somebody, I mean, are you saying yeah, that's, yeah. that's the way we would talk about that? Yeah, ge literally, gender-neutral language is our friend, right? And that's that's becoming a, a broader cultural thing uh -huh. where it used to be you would assume the male, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you, give me an example. Uh, well, even in Scripture. So uh, man shall not live by yep. bread alone. Well, how do women live? Right? We're not yeah. even going to talk about them because we're in a patriarchal society and tribal culture and blah, blah, blah. So now we would say, well, people. Right. right. And so if we can adopt that same type of language, acknowledging, as you said, there's an increasing awareness that there are, there are lesbian and gay and bisexual students in our youth group. Like that is a thing. And uh, they're in our churches and they're in our schools and they're in our communities. And this isn't something that the kids are unaware of. It's something that we're unaware of as adult leaders, right? The millennials, if you do statistical research, you see that most folks that are in high school or college or just out of college, most of them say, I have plenty of gay friends. And it's the folks over 40 that are like, I don't really know any gay people, mm -hmm. right? right? And so... I think that one of the key shifts in the conversation, and this is more of a heart issue than it is a practical piece, but it, it is very practical in its application, is proximity and relationship. Get to know, if you're a youth pastor in a community, get to know where gay kids in your community hang out. Sit down and listen and learn and ask questions and say, hey, would you be willing to tell me about your journey? What was it like when you, when you told your parents? Have you told your parents? Why? why how did it go? Why not? Uh, what are you afraid of? And not not engaging in those conversations to correct, not engaging in those conversations to, to give an opinion, but literally to inform to our opinions, right? To, to say, oh, and, and then we're able to have a little bit more compassion and understanding. So when you know that there's a, you know, a gay kid in your youth group 
let's say that his name is Stephen, and Stephen's been coming to your youth group, and you've been engaging in conversations with Stephen about how he's being bullied at school, or how his his dad told him that if he doesn't change his orientation, that he's not his son anymore, and your heart just breaks for him because you mm-hmm. want this kid to know that he's loved, right? Yeah. And so now when you're talking about sex, and you know that Stephen's there, and you've engaged in conversations with Stephen, the way that you talk about it is probably going to be a little bit different. And so I think being intentional in turning this conversation not from an issue into into a person, yeah. like literally knowing there are faces of people who I care about and love and want to support that are here, uh, or if they were here, what would I what would I say? What I, what I like to say in my congregation is that I'm I'm not trying to win a culture war in our in our youth room with our youth group. I'm trying to love your son, your daughter. I'm trying to love students. So winning the culture war is not my concern. And there, there might be families or parents or an angry dad who says, "What, well, why, you're, you know, why are you using language? You know, why, teach, you know, t- tell them how we feel about this. What advice would you give that youth pastor? Is there a resource that you could give them? You've mentioned loves and orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is there something that you would say? Uh, begin this conversation with your parents, or or, or ha- sit down and have coffee with this dad. Ask them these questions, or or a book that might be suggested for a youth pastor who who feels that tension, but wants to create a space where every student knows that they are loved. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, on our website at themarinfoundation.org, we've got a resources tab. And, and there in that tab, there are plenty of resources for folks. I'll, I'll highlight a few that are in that list, but that's that's where you'd want to go is the marinfoundation.org um, to the resources tab. But Andrew's book, Love is an Orientation, also had a DVD that accompanied it, and it has a whole section for youth pastors on what does it look like to engage in this conversation. Uh, so that's a DVD curriculum with a, a small group discussion guide that comes along with it. That is very helpful. When my book is published, which that'll be December of next year, uh, that'll be a resource that I'll sh- shamelessly self-plug. Um, I think I think it's very helpful. Uh, I wrote it. It's wonderful. Um, but it, a- additionally, uh, we'll also have for for parents and also for youth pastors who really aren't just responsible for the students, but also engage often with the parents. We're creating at the Marin Foundation the Parent Resource Initiative, which is a curriculum designed out of over 220 interviews that we did with parents who have kids that identify as LGBT. And we asked both the parents and in many cases the children, what was it like when your kid came out to you? What was helpful to you? What did you say that worked? What did you say that didn't work? How's your relationship with your with your child now? Uh, and so we've compiled all of this information. We're having it looked at by universities to do qualitative and quantitative research. And then we're going to develop a curriculum of kind of how-tos, very practical, like, hey, this stuff, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, these books are very helpful. Uh, here's what your kid needs to hear from you. Um, additionally, there's another book called The First 90 Days that just came out by another friend of mine named Candace Zubernot. She's a therapist based out of California. It's called The First 90 Days, and it's specifically for parents. It's just a, a small devotional, little nuggets each day of kind of the emotional roller coaster the parents go through when their kids come out to them. And that's very helpful even to just inform uh, you as a youth pastor what are, what are the thoughts and, and processes and what questions 
questions are good to ask for parents in, as they engage in this conversation. Um, and then kind of the final piece is out just born out of a life experience that I had when I was at a church. I wasn't a youth pastor in this church that I worked at. I was actually the associate pastor and worship pastor. Um, but I encountered uh, a situation where I was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, there was a student in our church that had been uh, violated by a previous pastor, and there was a cover-up that was happening that I was aware of, and uh, I had gone to the police and filed a police report and did all the things, which this, by the way, ultimately resulted in the state taking action against not just the individual, but also the church itself for negligent reporting. Um, but in the middle of this, the 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 situation was such that the pastor and some of the elders were kind of asking me to stop stop talking about it. And it wasn't as if I was publishing this on a blog. Blogs right. weren't actually a thing at this time, but it was that I was in, I was holding the leadership accountable to we need to have active yeah. steps like the kid needs to go to therapy and we we got to hold the guy, the perpetrator accountable. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, no, 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 let's let the storm blow over. And I knew that if I, if I continued to push, I was going to lose my job. And I was terrified. Uh, but I had to ask myself the question, what's best for this student? It, not what's best for me, what's best for my career, uh, but what's best for the student. And, and really, not just as if I were wearing a, a wristband, but what would Jesus do, mm-hmm. right? And what does Jesus have to say about children? And, and what does he have to say about people who harm children? And, and which side do I want to be on? And so there was this kind of, you know, aha moment where I was like, okay, it doesn't matter. Um, You know, regardless of the consequences, I've got to do the right thing. And though that's a real extreme example, that's helped shape my moral compass in ministry because we're all faced with hard decisions, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes the leadership or our pastors are trying to force us or parents are trying to force us, or maybe we feel internal pressures Mm -hmm. to do something that we know is a little less than ethical uh, in order to help save our reputation in the community or help save our career. And when it comes to this conversation, we have to ask what's best for, for the students that identify as gay or lesbian in our youth groups? Uh, what, what is best for the student who might literally be thinking about harming themselves because they don't have a safe place uh, to talk? And, and if there is a, a place that ought to be safe and sacred oh, for these it, conversations, it it's the church. It's got to be our yeah. youth groups. And I, Michael, that is what did it for me in, in this was, you know, for much of my career, you know, I, I think I was just hoping I would, wouldn't, would you know, have to deal with this or would that, that, that I could just, you know, not have to address this situation because I wasn't sure mm. what to do. I didn't know how, I, you know, I knew it was, I knew it was potentially explosive issue and, and I, I love what I do and, but I also love students so much, you know, and, and. And I remember when I, when I started looking at the news, you know, I started Googling, mm. you know, suicide rates and yep. gay, you know, yep. and you just type in gay suicide or you type in bullying and suicide or you type in and you realize how many students out there that are in churches like mine, mm. you know, who and who are are dead or, or, or who might be dead if if it's not, you know, if we. We got to, do, and obviously, things have changed, and there's an awareness mm-hmm. now, and we and we're doing some things, you know, as a culture, I think, to try and prevent suicide, mm-hmm. you know, but or bullying of gays, but but for me, it was sort, of, it was like, man, this is a life or death issue right now, and I don't know who it affects. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know who it affects. I, I can assume, like I have for most of my career, that nobody in my youth group is dealing with this. Mm-hmm. I can assume that. Yeah. 
But is that the smart thing to do? You know, perhaps it's smarter, perhaps it's more loving to assume that someone in my youth group is dealing with this. And and, and that, that someone that, you know, to assume that a best friend or a relative, you know, is mm-hmm. dealing with this in a way, you know, that, that requires a kind of active pursuit of love from me. So I just really appreciate what you're saying because every every youth pastor, you know, we love what we do. We we don't want to be in the crosshairs, you know, and this issue can put us in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I appreciate that story, you know, and, and I, I, I'm not saying I appreciate the fact that you got, you know, you lost your job <laughs> over that, but, you know, the, the, that's a it testimony. Turned, it turned out all right for me in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. absolutely. And and now, you know, of course, you're you're obviously doing something that you love, and you're making a difference in the in the church and um, and in the in the world. You know, Michael, I've loved I've loved being with you. I've I've really appreciated the way you've shared with us. And I and I want to say one final thing, and then I'll give you the last word before we'll hug. I'll I'll play some <laughs> music at the end. Can we um, hug to the music? Oh, we we do no, every that's time. Beautiful. And, but that's beautiful. you know, I I sort of always force my guests into that. You know, because the digital side hug. Um, and by the way, when you have middle schoolers in your own home, you know, right. I, I got the I got the email of a middle school youth minister, okay. David All Knox. Right. <laughs> we will get you in touch. It'll be he'll he'll help you with every single question you have about middle schoolers. Now, um, here's I just I want to finish with this. I love and I heard this yesterday, and I've been thinking about it. And, hmm. and you said it on the podcast earlier. I just want to say thank you for the heart that you have to come into places like a church like mine. And, yeah. and, and I, don't, I don't know if you'll ever come to a church like yeah. mine to, you know, as the Marin Foundation to help us with anything or not. But that you would say to us, we want to work with you wherever you are. Yeah. We're not going to try and change you the, theologically. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, where you stand is where we're going to begin and help you from there to love people yeah. the, the, the best we can. And that I just think that's the coolest thing. So every youth minister that's listening could imagine possibly mm-hmm. calling the Marin Foundation or looking into your 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 foundation and getting help yeah. in this difficult area, regardless of where they stand. Right. Theoretically. Right. Yep. No, that's very true. And thank you for thanking me. I just that. think yeah. that's the coolest thing. Well, you well, you're welcome. <laughs> I don't. That turned into a you're welcome from me. It was supposed to be a thank you to you. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, Yes, thank you. Yeah, and I guess any final word. Well, I just—I mean, the the only thing that I would like to add is for folks who are listening to this, just just what you said. If you're uh, a youth pastor or a pastor or a parent or just you know somebody who's in in the middle of trying to navigate these conversations, uh, the Marin Foundation exists to help. Uh, figure out how how to love well, how to live and love the way that we believe uh, Jesus did and does. And so um, if any of your listeners would like to contact us, themarinfoundation.org is our website. Uh, if you go on the staff page, all of our emails are there uh, of the staff and you can you can send me an email. I'd love to love to get to know some of the people that listen to your stuff and I really would enjoy uh, working with whatever church, would love to engage in this conversation better. It's what we do, and uh, I really do enjoy doing it. It's amazing. I feel very privileged uh, not just to be engaged in the work, but to have conversations like this, David. It's It's been a joy to talk with you over lunch, and even in this podcast, I feel like we've 
explored new territory we hadn't yet yeah. talked about, and it, it was, it's been great. So thank you. It's always good to make a new friend, and, and it's an honor to, to get a chance to listen to you talk and, and to know that you're donating 100% of the proceeds from this, that 100% of the honorarium I'm paying you, you're yep. don- it's going back into the Marin Foundation. It is. That's true, actually. <laughs> you may could guess there's, there's no, no money changing hands right now. Michael, you have been a gift to us. Give my wallet back. Well, that's right. Why are you? I'm going to start the music. And digital gonna, side hug. That's it. It's the Hallelujah that's, Bumper Chorus. I love it. I'm so thankful for you oh. and for what we've learned today. And again, that is the MarinFoundation.org. That's right. M A R I N. And of course, they can always just, you can just Google Marin Foundation uh, and go from there for resources, for help. Uh, good luck with the new book. Thank you so Thank much. You. And good. I, I hope it goes well with. Joey's later on. Yeah, today. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> See you next time on the digital side, Doug.